welcome to episode 265 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. Nathan Smith. In today's episode, we will be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will finally conclude our Young Critics Watch Old Movie series with 1986's A Better Tomorrow. Uh... Real quick, some notes. We said last week uh, we had reviews of Angel Has Fallen and Parasite on the website. There's also a new review of Mikey and Nikki, uh, which is on the Criterion channel. <clears throat> and I think a favorite of the podcast. We've talked about it, I think, on episodes multiple, multiple times. So <laughs> mm-hmm. more, more. Also, that, that essay, which is by you, has some fancy quote animations I was wow. I was shocked when I scrolled down and stuff started moving while I was reading it. Um, Mr. Yeah. Fancy Pants over here, Mr. SEO. Zach learned to code. I, it's I, I like to you know. It was like they're not gonna like really latch on to the like the content. So let me give you some flashiness <laughs> to like keep are you. We, like, oh, look at are this. Are we pivoting to video? That's right. Look. Yeah, we're. Guys. Oh, we pivoted the video a long time ago. Oh, no. We're recording right now. The, the layoffs are incoming. It's like succession. I've only been watching succession this week. I haven't been watching. <laughs> Dylan, if you're listening to this, you've been laid off. So uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I'm just happy. I, actually, if anything, the layoffs were last week when I had to do part one by yeah. myself. So uh, <laughs> that, that's when the layoffs happened. Is that my choice? There, nobody else had anything to add to the TIFF conversations who was on. So I just, you know, I uh, talk sh- or drive time radioed it. You know, I was going to. But they weren't like sitting there on the call listening to you do that. They were just. <laughs> You did that on your own. You just you just Mark Marin did. I Mark Marin did. Yeah. I did in your garage, just really angry, stewing, shitting your pants. I was. I was just sitting Ending there working through it. Very long ad for stamps.com. <laughs> oh yeah, Adam and Eve. <laughs> uh, well, let's go ahead and jump into movies that we saw this week. Um, Andrew, I'm gonna t- uh, kick it off to you first. You have a couple, uh, some new releases, and I feel like one that. One that you you enjoyed, especially in one that did not seem to uh, strike your fancy. (laughs) Yeah, let's start with the negative here. Um, So I saw It Chapter 2, which people who've been following the site for a while know I reviewed the first It um, and had, had some things to say about it. In hindsight, it's fine. It's not actively bad the first one uh but it is kind of mediocre in its execution and and overdoes the the showing of the monster and just just in general a little tiring and that is amplified to the nth degree with it chapter two which i would like to review with three numbers um Breaking new ground here, film criticism with numbers. Um, number The first number is 169, which is the number of minutes uh, that this film lasts for, uh, which, you know, there are good movies that are over 169 minutes. Um, this is not necessarily one of them. Uh, for the, the, sub, the reasons that I'm about to give, uh, the second number is six, which is the number of main characters in It Chapter 2, all of which need to get their own little intro scene, despite the fact that 
we've already met all these characters in it chapter one, which was two and a half hours. Um, and all of those characters in their little intro scene need to have you be introduced to what thing they are afraid of, and then that thing needs to turn into Pennywise, so you get all six characters have that scene, and they're all structured the exact same way. Didn't they do that um, in the first one also? They did do it in the first one. Uh, and my third and final number in this review is the number two, which is the amount of timelines this movie takes place in. Uh, and therefore, the amount of Whoa. times you have to experience every character's intro scene. So you see the characters as adults, played by a pretty solid cast of like James McAvoy and Jessica Chastain and Bill Hader, etc. Um, but you, you get introduced to the adults. Uh, the adults have a thing they're afraid of. That thing turns into Pennywise. But then you have flashbacks to the adults as kids showing them uh, find a thing they're afraid of that thing turns into Pennywise which I will remind you as Zach said happened in the first movie these are different things they're afraid of turning into Pennywise that just weren't good enough to make it into the first film this is the B-sides album of It Chapter 1 and then when you're in those flashbacks seeing the kids have their repetitive like scary thing turning into Pennywise then you move to the adult characters looking back on themselves as kids and then the thing that was happening to the kid starts happening to them so there's like three layers of redundant unnecessary expository shit in this movie again it's pushing three hours and there's like over 20 exposition scenes and those exposition scenes all do the exact same thing look at this flat two-dimensional character who every line that comes out of their mouth is just like reiterating the the one character trait they have whether they are the kid who's a hypochondriac and is afraid of everything or the kid who's wants to be a comedian is just unnecessarily a jerk to everybody etc 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 they just say their their dumb little flat line they are scared by Pennywise and on to the next one. And it's just running on a cycle. It does that for basically two hours. And then the last two hour or the last hour, God, it feels like there's another two hours in this movie. The last hour is them, you know, teaming up and going to the sewer and yelling insults at Pennywise. Like Penny, they, they, they really, you know, go all in on explaining to you what Pennywise represents. He's like the manifestation of pure fear, and he's the uh, the the reflection of the the <laughs> the, the the reflection of this repressed um, you know evil that's lurking among this like small town America, like real blue velvet shit. And uh, he's he's representing the the childhood trauma that no one wants to face, and all this stuff that just like keep hammering you over the head with like this is what this character means. Um, the and real the, and the way that the real you, Pennywise was the friends we made along the way. True, true. Um, And the way that you defeat this primordial evil that represents suburban corruption and trauma and all of these things is you yell at it that it's stupid. You just tell it, hey, you're just a stupid clown. 
because one of the things that's related to the corruption of suburban America is bullying that happens in suburban America. And apparently the way that you defeat um, the you know s- supernatural specter of bullying is you just bully it. You just yell dumb insults at it and it, you know, cowers and, and goes away. Um, this movie is exhausting <laughs> I I watched the the miniseries uh, two years ago before the first film came out the miniseries is I don't have the runtime in front of me but I think it's pushing like four hours um, and this movie feels as long as that uh, because it basically has all the component parts um, you know that that film or that miniseries or whatever you want to call it is done in a flashback structure where you're seeing the the adult timeline moving forward from the beginning but then you're also getting all these flashbacks to the kids and so it's two different stories folded into one which apparently is how Stephen King's novel is structured and it seemed like a genius move to when the first movie came out just make it about the kids because to be honest the adult stuff in the miniseries really doesn't work um and i thought that maybe they could do the adult stuff justice by focusing on just the adult stuff and fleshing it out and making it function but they don't they just cram another movie's worth of kids stuff in there and so it is like you're watching reruns from the first film um it's a total waste of time. I should add, though, is my closing note on this, that the, the, the one little moment in the miniseries that I will always take with me because it just crystallizes just how dumb that movie is and just how not scary it is, is the scene where all the adults go to a Chinese restaurant as their big first reunion and Pennywise jumps out of some fortune cookies. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my uh, God. That's fucking amazing. That the fortune cookie scene would not be in it chapter two, but it is. Um, It's done a little bit better (laughs) than the, the way they did it in the miniseries, but still Pennywise jumps out of some fortune cookies. Um, Wow. Don't. That almost Don't makes me that. want to see it. Um, yeah, that's my hmm. review. I thought it was very bad, um, to be honest. But there's a um, there's a better better movie that you could be seeing if you didn't want to spend two and a half hours stuck uh, in a nostalgia yes. hole. <laughs> there is a better movie you could be seeing, and I'm I'm actually really happy to report that this movie is doing really well. I mean, it's number two in the box office. It's not making as much money as it chapter two, but uh, this is the kind of movie that people talk, like lament not having all the time. Like where are the, uh, the mid-budget move, like blockbuster movies for adults? Um, that movie is Hustlers, which is out right now. Um, Hustlers stars Constance Wu from Crazy Rich Asians and The Feels. Um, it also stars Jennifer Lopez um, and has some small secondary tertiary roles from Cardi B and Lizzo in the first act of the film, who both do an excellent job. Uh, Cardi B especially is just hysterical in the, the couple of scenes that she has here. Um, but this is a movie about um, uh, strippers and how they were affected by the financial crisis in 2008. So it starts 
Um, I mean, you could. There's an interesting essay to be written comparing this movie to Showgirls, which is very much about consumerism and American culture. Um, and this is also kind of about consumerism and American culture, but um, more about large-scale structures that are in place, kind of uh, uh, that that various uh, different parties' lives are uh, beholden to. The ba- the basic plot here is that um, Constance Wu is new at the strip club and she feels not super confident, and J Lo is the person who uh, has you know she's she's a veteran. Uh, she's just the 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 person with the biggest reputation in the club, and so she kind of takes Constance Wu under her wing and shows her the ropes. And there are these great um, like training montage sequences that are mostly set to classical music, um, though there are, there's a an awesome. Uh, like pop music soundtrack in this film as well. Um, it, it is in very many ways a, a Goodfellas riff, um, and like Goodfellas, it just has these constant needle drops, kind of alternating between classical piano music and various pop music from the mid to late 2000s, as well as the uh, mid 2010s, as the movie kind of jumps forward in time. Uh, and there were some songs in this movie that. I remember hearing on the radio when they were out, but these were songs that I was sick of at the time and and just thought were very vapid and I, I just didn't want to hear them. But they're used in this movie in, in a way that's honestly really moving. Like there's a scene where Usher visits the strip club and the, the DJ plays, I don't know what the name of the song is called. I want to make love in this club is the, the hook of the Usher song. And it's like surprisingly emotional just the way it gets used i don't know i don't have the vocabulary to talk about it but um so jennifer lopez is training constance Wu, and then the financial crisis happens and the bottom drops out of this whole business because wall street guys who are the the high rollers who are spending a lot of money in this club uh just stop coming or stop spending a lot of money um and so a lot of people were unemployed, and uh, Jennifer Lopez and Constance Wu then turned to a life of crime of, uh, you know, uh, going out and, and fishing for men at, at other bars and bringing and like giving them date rape drugs essentially, bringing them into their club and running up their credit cards without their knowledge, and. Man, I don't have a lot of really smart things to say about this movie, um, but it is just uh, really exciting, really well done, really solidly put together, incredibly acted. The costuming is amazing as well. Jennifer Lopez has all these fur coats that are just incredible, and there's this amazing shot. Like one of her introductory shots is like her smoking on a rooftop, like uh, reclining back in this giant, like luxurious fur coat, and it's just such an image. Um, and I, I honestly struggle to find a flaw with this thing. It's it's just a really solid, um, like piece of adult drama entertainment. A um, lot of energy, a lot of fun, and and fairly smart in its handling of all these various issues about, 
you know, uh, the sex work and, and uh, uh, money and the just the American economy and uh, crime and, and all these intersecting issues. Uh, so I would strongly recommend Hustlers if you have not gone to see it. Um, it's been one of my more uh, um, appreciated theater trips this year, to be honest. Nice. Yeah, it, it, it was one that played while we were at TIFF that seemed to be, I'm kind of uh, bummed we didn't see it while it was there because it seemed like a lot of people were uh, digging it while uh, when it came out yeah. during the festival. So. And I probably would not have seen it if there wasn't buzz from critics at TIFF, um, but there was, and I was curious, so I sought it out, and I think all that praise is very well deserved. Cool. Uh, you had one more? Yeah, the last movie um, is one that I'm kind of disappointed wasn't better. Uh, this film is called Tigers Are Not Afraid. Uh, it came out in it originally came out in 2017, I think, in Mexico, and has been slowly making its way um, to the United States via film festivals, and uh, now it's on Shutter, and it has a very small theatrical release. It's actually was playing at Knoxville Central Cinema, but it probably won't be playing by the time this podcast comes out. Um, This is a film that's gotten cosigns from um, Guillermo del Toro and I think Stephen King as well. Uh, But the Guillermo del Toro comparison is is really apparent. Like You can see what del Toro likes about this film because it's essentially a a Pan's Labyrinth riff. Um, It's about... um, this this young girl, his name her name is Estrella or Estrella. I'm not 100% sure what the correct way to pronounce that is, um, but she lives in this this town in Mexico that's been ravaged by the drug cartel. Um, there's some statistics at the beginning of the movie about how many children are living without parents because of deaths at the hand of the drug cartel. Um, and so she's fending for herself and going to school and later links up with this, you know, gang of children who have all kind of teamed up to, to, to take care of each other. Um, and the opening of the film is a school shooting, not the type of school shooting that we are used to here in America, but a shooting where a school is just caught in the crossfire of uh, drug deals gone bad. Um, And her teacher, who's in the middle of teaching her about fairy tales, hands her three pieces of chalk while they're all ducking and covering during this shooting. And she says, these are three wishes, just like in the fairy tales. And so the movie is structured like a fairy tale, like Pan's Labyrinth, uh, where she makes three wishes over the course of the film. And they all have these um, unexpected consequences. Like her first wish is, I wish my mom was back. But uh, her mom comes back as uh, kind of this this ghostly, ghoulish figure where uh, you're seeing her... um, her like rotting corpse in a body bag essentially and this is very haunting traumatizing image for her um and the the film it kind of spins its wheels it has a really good premise um a real it's a really sweet movie it has its heart in the right place and it wants to use horror uh to explore um you know these really difficult issues of childhood trauma and grief and the political strife in mexico and uh, all this stuff but 
Um, it's just really underdeveloped. The there, there's all these various like monsters and and mythological things that that you see, and they all feel very disconnected and and half thought through. Um, there's this fairly large cast, this ensemble cast of kids who all do a, a decent job acting, but I just don't think they have uh, real characters to speak of. Um, and then you have an antagonist who. Uh, he works for the drug cartel, but he's also uh, running for office in this Mexican city. Um, and his whole threat, his whole you know reason for existence, is really fuzzy, um, and and ultimately it feel the, the movie ends up feeling a little pointless to me um, and I was really let down by it because this is a film that I've been looking forward to for a little while um, it just doesn't have uh, the tension that it needs it, it doesn't have the um, I don't know a sense of uh, awe or um, real magic to it in the same way that Pan's Labyrinth does uh, it feels a little bit like a paint by numbers pan's labyrinth riff rather than you know fully um committing to being its own thing and and having its own sense of character um so not a movie that i think is bad but a movie that i wanted to be better and was was kind of saddened by but again it's a sweet movie it it has a good heart and uh i imagine a lot of horror fans will like it but um yeah, I was just hoping for more here. I, 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 at the beginning, when you said that Stephen King co-signed on it, that already made me kind of go, eh, because that dude will, like, co-sign and be like, yeah, check this out for literally everything. Yeah. So, uh... <laughs> right, yeah. That yeah. is true as well. <laughs> um, well, I guess you can catch that, possibly, uh, possibly catch it in Knoxville, but it's probably playing uh, at independent theaters around the country as well so it's there um I'm, real quickly i'm going to talk about uh two films that i, di- I didn't get to in my uh mark Marin hour of uh tiff recaps <laughs> the first one is weathering with you the latest from makoto shinkai uh he kind of i guess got a lot of attention um last year was it last year with your name or was that the year before? Uh, your name was two years ago. Okay, so two years ago, um, with your name, uh, became kind of an international phenomenon. He, he's been making uh, animated films for a long time, but that was kind of his big breakout uh, outside of just in Japan. Um, they talked a little bit about before showing the film that it was like the highest grossing Japanese film in China, uh, Taiwan, and a number of other countries. Uh, around there it, it just was a big hit and so this is his follow-up to that and if you've seen a Makoto Shinkai film you kind of got the gist of what this is about uh, <laughs> there's a boy he uh, he runs away from home and is in Tokyo uh, is looking for a job. He gets a uh, he gets a job working for this strange uh, occult magazine, and while he's in Tokyo, it seems to be raining every day. Um, and he runs into this girl who naturally he immediately falls in love with, and he, he finds out that she has the power to uh, stop the rain and clear the skies uh, by because she has this connection to the uh, weather patterns of Tokyo due to this uh, long-ranging ancient 
not really curse, ancient, uh, you know, ritual of people who control weather, I guess. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it was really cool to, cause, uh, and I actually have them over here. I'm going to mail those to you, Andrew, this week. Um, I have, <laughs> I, I re-watched okay. through, uh, or watched through, uh, Andrew's collection of Makoto Shinkai films. And he's, 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 he, I feel like he's pretty, uh, I think the one thing that, and you can disagree with me, but the one thing at least people will kind of go to with him first is just how visually, uh, stunning his his animation is. Um, some of them his backgrounds are so detailed and lush and beautiful, and he edits so quickly that it's just like he's throwing them away. You know, you'll see this gorgeous background for half a second because he has a hundred more he wants to show you. Yeah, and it was really it, it was kind of special to be able to see one of his movies on one of the bigger screens at TIFF uh, and really get to like just be enveloped by all of those visuals because this one especially where you're having this uh, this sky weather girl kind of like way up above Tokyo and then this you know the swirling patterns around the city is really uh, is really special um, so I it, honestly I was you know for, for the most part really enjoyed this movie uh it kind of goes in line with a lot of his other ones i don't think i liked it as much as your name uh but (laughs) the strangest caveat of this whole thing was that so she has this power of the weather weather changing and i'm I'm just gonna spoil the ending because you can still enjoy the movie and and have this spoiled for you but uh (laughs) for whatever reason and i want to i would love somebody to ask makoto shinkai what, what he was thinking with this but so she has this power to change the weather but i guess she also if she wants to pretty much eradicate this heavy rain and terrible storm patterns so essentially climate change uh forever she has to kind of sacrifice herself and give herself up to uh to allow the weather to uh to be stable and so you know naturally the boy is upset he doesn't want to lose his girlfriend but she's like you know she's like we i got i gotta do this i gotta help everybody so she did so she sacrifices herself everything gets cleared up um then the boy though is like no this isn't right i have to i have to get her back and so he works he does all this stuff he has like cops chasing him he like has a gun for some reason and (laughs) and then he finds his way to like wherever she is like within the cloud world and finds her and brings her back which proceeds to like bring all of the bad weather patterns and the rain back to Tokyo and then we have a cut to uh to three years later and it has been raining every day in Tokyo so that like part of the city of Tokyo is like flooded because you have all of these like ramifications of uh this constant weathered pattern that he decided to reverse because he wanted his girlfriend back and then it like he like reconnects with her and that's the end of the movie and I was like so what you're saying is that if you had to pick between your girlfriend and like resolving the effects of climate change you're gonna pick your girlfriend because that's a horrible message (laughs) (laughs) so uh yeah i don't know what to do with that one i was kind of like i disagree with that i'd be like see elisa uh i'm gonna you know save multiple lives instead of yours because climate change so somebody needed to give him another read on the script uh otherwise 
it's an, it's 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 a you're in for a, a, a general Makoto Shinkai film uh, with a very strange. Like at the end, I was like, did, I turned to Jessica and I was like, did he really like just like do that? Like, does that does that we're supposed to take away that cli- that love is bigger than climate change? Because that's not gonna happen. Um, yeah. So uh, I don't. And now that you've seen four Shinkai movies, um, what what would you say is the best one? What would you recommend to people if they want to check out his work? Um. I would say, I mean, your name, I'd say, would be an easy one because it's pretty, it's pretty accessible and middle of the road. Um, I think my favorite is the uh, the Garden of Words. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I would say, yeah, I would say if if you're like I've never seen a Makoto Shinkai mo- movie, I'd say your name would probably be like the safe kind of middle of the road bet um, because I, th- I think that's a good, I think it's a good gauge for where you want to go with it because. Um, yeah, but I would say, like I said, I'd say weather, weathering with you is a little, is, is not, it's not as good as that. Um, but still yeah. solid. He's a little inconsistent. I've seen five or six of his movies now. I would say three of them are great. Uh, five centimeters per second, your name and the garden of words. Um, I've also seen the children who chase lost voices, which is really bad. And the voices of a distant star, which is has a good core and a good ideas, but horrible execution because he was just, it was such an early work and he's working with such limited resources and it just looks like crap. Um, and so I'm fully expecting for, or I'm fully ready for this to not be as good as some of his others because he has let me down from time to time, but I think his good movies are really good. Um, I just want to so know if he should, is just, a climate yeah. change denier or not. <laughs> I would also like to know the answer to that. Yeah. So if uh, if a wonderful journalist could ask him, that would be nice. <laughs> like I'd like to get that on the record. Um, the other one I would want to, want to talk about real quickly. I'd like to talk about it like in depth once more people watch it. Um, but it is waves. Uh, just a hot tip. People at TIFF love some A24. Um, so this is the A24 movie. It's the latest from Trey Edward Schultz, who did uh, Krisha and It Came at Night. Uh, and this one is kind of... It Comes at Night. It Comes at Night. Which is a garbage movie. Ugh, it, it came and went at night, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, it really was. I, I um, the, the day that I saw that movie, I also watched The Amazing Spider-Man and the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. And I gave, gave all of those movies one and a half stars on Letterboxd. It was probably the single worst day of movie watching in my entire life. I gave It Comes at Night one star. I think one and a half is far too generous. Probably well, so, probably so. I don't know what you get. This this is a little Anyways, bit this different. This different. one is is in the this one I think is try I, I haven't seen <laughs> either of his uh his initial ones, but I was listening to some thoughts on it and it seems like this one is more in line with Krisha, the his first film where it's like it's more like gleaning out the horror of in the in kind of the anxiety of like interactions with people more than like on the face, you know, horror that uh, it comes at night is. 
Um, but yeah, this is this is about a, a family and that's in South Florida. Uh, the uh, the father is played by Sterling K. Brown. Um, the son, Kelvin Harrison Jr., is kind of the first protagonist in this. Uh, I think he was in It Comes at Night, and he is in high school. He's in his senior year. He is a, a an accomplished wrestler, um, but it's uh, his season is, is starting to begin and he's kind of stuff starts kind of falling apart and kind of falling through the cracks uh he he has some issues with his uh it seems like relatively long-term girlfriend and then he also has a nagging injury that he's told should he should uh, deal with rather than play through, even though that would affect uh, his future going forward uh, in terms of getting like a scholarship to college. Um, it seems like he kind of has a uh, relatively semi-contentious you know off and on relationship with his dad uh his dad uh, i guess was also a wrestler as well but suffered a knee injury that kind of put him out of commission and so he's it's kind of the typical uh or prototypical like channeling his uh passions and his goals and his mindset through his son um so he's so he's kind of balancing all three of these different things um then you uh so then i don't really want to dive too deeply into the plot because something happens halfway through that completely shifts the whole thing um but i don't think it's i think it's kind of one that uh people should go in relatively fresh dealing with um but uh pretty much the the narrative shifts from the son to the daughter played by taylor russell who uh is kind of trying is trying to deal with the the frantic uh nature of her of her family dynamics between the her mother and father and her brother and um i don't know this was a there's a a lot of people really really like this um i kind of the thing i struggled with with it is it's this it's a uh, you have this black family. Um, it's written and directed by Trey Edward Schultz, who is a white guy. Um, in the first part, like I'm talking about, where you have this dynamic between the father and son, and kind of the uh, like the black athletic body, and the uh, and kind of the uh, struggling through, uh, I guess, kind of toxic black masculinity as well. Um, which are, which seem like things that like Trey Edward Schultz is trying to uh, say something about, but at the same time he do, he clearly doesn't have much doesn't really have much to say about it, and I don't feel like as someone who uh, should be really talking about it because he doesn't have a lot to say about it. It seems like he's kind of using it in order to dri- It seems like he's using it to drive the, the drama and the narrative without really bringing anything enriching to that conversation. Um, I was telling somebody it, it, you know, kind of comparing what it's doing with that compared to something like Creed, where you have a black writer and director and Ryan Coogler kind of exploring uh, toxic mas- masculinity as well as uh, black athletes is really, really 
really interesting. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be just, I mean, I think that uh, like High Flying Bird with uh, with Steven Soderbergh earlier this year is also one that is a little bit more interesting in how it's handling that. And this one seems uh, just kind of too all over the place. It's, uh, it's a, a little bit over two hours. It's like uh, two hours and 15 minutes, and it kind of wants to be this long-ranging familial drama. Um, and I'm not really sure. It has its moments, and it has sequences, and I think that uh, you know the actors are good. Sterling K. Brown is, is really good uh, in a number of scenes in this, but I don't think it ever really coalesces into like this magnum opus, uh, long kind of novelistic narrative that he's trying to shape it in. Um, and so I'll be curious to see how this is received when it goes wide. I think it comes out later this year because I think it's just um, somebody telling a story that he doesn't, that he's not very informed about. Uh, so yeah, that's Waves. It's interesting that it seems like this is a like a maximalist, like more is more epic movie, considering it comes at night was so dedicated to minimalism that it ended up like erasing itself out of existence. Um, to see him shift gears entirely, I have no idea what to expect from that. Yeah, I wasn't really sure either, and it's so kind of... Um bloated and I don't say I'm not saying that like as a bad thing but it's just there's so much that he's trying to cover within this two hour and 15 minute time frame that uh I don't know it's it seems like it's one of those like incredibly ambitious things that he that's not even that I think he could have probably told in a much more in like I don't know. He could have told the story in like an hour and a half. I mean, uh, <laughs> I just I just wrote an essay that that kind of gets at uh, at masculinity and male relationships, and it's only an hour and a half. Like I think that you can probably you don't have to have a two almost a two and a half hour movie that uh, digs into this. But the the, the I, I to me the the takeaway for me was just kind of um, I I just didn't feel like this was a story that Trey Edward Schultz. Uh, needed to set needed to tell or he needed to be like I don't know he needed to be collaborating with something because it just feels like it was missing this uh, I think it was missing kind of the soul that it was it really needed to, to investigate and uh, it kind of just was I mean it, it, it veered into like being I, I've never watched that the show uh, I think it's Euphoria the Zendaya show on uh, on HBO but I heard people comparing it to that it kind of just veered into that where it was just like kids going or like high school age kids going off the rails and that's drama and I was like yeah but what's it saying really um, I've heard this movie has like five Frank Ocean songs in it. Oh my gosh! Um, let me just tell. Let me just ex- and, let me just and, explain one thing. But I would want to say like Frank Ocean is a big cinephile. You know, if he's if he's working um, closely with Trey Edward Schultz to to get these five movies, you know, these five songs integrated in here, like you should just like co-write the movie with Frank Ocean, man. Like, let, let Frank Ocean write a movie. That would be awesome. So, right? so this is the last thing I'll say. So when the when the big kind of shift in the middle happens um, and the, the character is driving and is, like, all jacked up, it, they, it pretty much cues Kanye's I Am A God, and I, like, physically rolled my eyes. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's yeah, too obvious. Um, so yeah, Waves. I think it comes out later this year, so I'll be curious to hear what other people say. Um, Nathan, you had a movie, though. Uh, yeah, I'll just do it real quickly. Um, so I watched recently, uh, about a week ago, the Frederick Wiseman documentary, Primate. 
um, on Canopy. I watched that with my girlfriend, Charlotte. We were looking for a pleasant documentary to watch on a Sunday evening. And, you know, Frederick Wiseman has some upsetting, stressful documentaries, but he also has some really chill ones. And at some point on Twitter, somebody had said that, like, their favorite Frederick Wiseman movie was this one that I watched, Primate. And so I was like, oh, it's about a, like, primate laboratory, like, studying chimpanzees, probably going to be some Jane Goodall shit, you know, just like humans and, and monkeys interacting, monkeys doing tasks, intelligence tests, all that stuff. That's what I thought. Turns out it is actually a deeply upsetting uh, movie. The It leans much more towards the like, you know, here are how institutions are evil and forbidding and oppressive and... Um, you know, it leans more to that side of Frederick Wiseman and less towards the, like, Central Park ex libris, like, here's the beauty of public services. Um, this is, like, from 1974, I believe. So it's some kind of, like, now I think that the things that happen in this movie would probably not happen. Or if they were to happen, I don't think they would let somebody film them. Um, because it's just some like deeply horrific shit that happens to these very cute monkeys. Like they basically, the male monkeys, they like hack their brains, drill into their brains and screw this little box onto the top of their head. Um, and that box is like connected to some wires, which are connected to some buttons, which basically make the monkey into a like automatic sex machine. Like, the scientists press a button and it sends a jolt through the box and it just makes the male monkey grab a female monkey and just start humping away. Um, it's like kind of funny to watch for like a second, but then it just becomes really sad. And, um, and you know, it also like these scientists are mostly male. There are like two female scientists and it just feels like you know, it's just these dudes in rooms talking about, like, monkey ejaculate and, like, how they're trying to make the monkeys masturbate so they can artificially inseminate the female monkeys and all this stuff. And, again, there's, like... What's the goal? Like, what, it, what is well, their reason for doing this Well, that's the thing. Exactly? That's the thing. And I think maybe <laughs> why Frederick Wiseman was particularly interested in this, you know. Because there is a sort of, like, novelty to the topic. You know, I feel like you could make very easily a, like, Christopher Guest-style um, mockumentary about, you know, people studying primates and doing weird things to primates' bodies. Or, you know, it reminded me a lot of uh, Andrew Bojowski's Computer Chess. I feel like you could kind of have a, have a version of, a fictionalized version of this movie that's sort of in the style of that, with just, like, all these nerds um, in rooms, in bland rooms. But I think what interests Frederick Wiseman is not that kind of novelty of the subject matter and more like that the fact that these scientists don't know what the fuck they're doing. Like they have no goal really. Um, and, you know, there's like this whole long meeting at the end where they're all of these scientists, all these male scientists are just sitting at this conference table and they're just sort of like pontificating on the value of research. And like the what they – the the insights that they give I think are like genuinely like valid and, and insightful things you know just being somebody who's like done academic research you know a lot of times you don't know 
what the fruits of your labor are going to be. You don't know what impact your work is going to have in the world. So you're like toiling away in your little laboratory or whatever, or in your library or archive. And you're like, what's the purpose of this? So these scientists are like asking, you know, what's the purpose of this? What's the value of doing this stuff? But you have to remember they're like, what they're doing is like, manipulating and like destroying these monkeys bodies like you see this extended disgusting sequence where they basically like cut this monkey open like shed its skin like take its skull out its brain out do all these tests to it so they're just straight up murdering monkeys and they're just kind of like we don't know why we're doing this maybe this will have some value we don't know (laughs) we don't know what the value will be until we're in the future when people have been able to reflect on this work and other people have been able to respond to our work and do other studies using our findings and so you really just realize these guys are just throwing like monkey droppings against a wall and seeing what sticks um so it is kind of a like horrific hour and 40 minutes there are some you know some funny sequences and stuff and and if you like to hear people talk about masturbation, like if you think that's funny, then you might get a kick out of this. But it also is like pretty disturbing and the sort of like Stan Brackage um, act of seeing with one's own eyes way that his short film about the study of uh, an autopsy. Um, it does have this sort of like horrifying clinical quality to it. And the whole it's like black and white. 16 millimeter, a lot of contrast, um, and just this like horrible physical atmosphere, just this like, you know, metal cages, really cramped rooms with weird, complicated machines and lots of wires and cords and things. Um, it's just like kind of a science fiction movie almost. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I gave it four and a half stars on Letterboxd, but I did not give it the like button because it felt a little weird to give this movie a like, but, um, I do think that it's a like very insightful movie and um, a worthwhile experience if that's what you're in for. It's not pleasant at all. It's not relaxing. Um, but I learned a thing or two. That's all you can ask for sometimes. All right. Well, Primate. Um, yeah. It's on Canopy for those of you who still have Canopy. Learn something. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We will be back talking a better tomorrow. Uh but tomorrow that doesn't include monkey masturbation after this hey cinematariots this is your co-host Lydia Creech with an important message during this break in the show Cinematary would like you to know that we definitely want your money. We still want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema, but now we're getting into the Patreon game, baby. We've brought on a lot of new voices to contribute to the site, and we want to honor our responsibility to compensate all these smart people for their hard work. To help us out, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary to sign up at the $5 a month level. In exchange, our patrons will get an exclusive bonus episode every month, weekly shout-outs on each episode of the show, and the ability to dictate a movie for us to cover eventually. If money's tight, we get it. There are still a few things you can do that we would greatly appreciate. 
first, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That's free to help us reach more listeners. <laughs> Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send an email to Zach at Cinematary.com. That's Zach, Z-A-C-H, to let us know your thoughts, and we will read them out and respond to them on future episodes. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think would enjoy listening to and participating in our film discussions we put out every week. So, to recap, review, send us your thoughts through Twitter and email, share with your friends and family, and sign up to be a patron. We would truly appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. And we are back with part two of episode 265 of Cinematary. In this part, we will continue and conclude our Young Critics Watch old movie series with 1986's A Better Tomorrow, directed by John Woo, from a script by Wu, Chan Hing Kai, and Lung Sukwa. The film stars Tai Lung, Leslie Chung, and Chow Young Fat. Uh, a former gangster attempts to reform with the help of his brother, a rookie police officer, but finds himself drawn back into a life of crime by his loyalty to his former partner. The film's theme song is In the Sentimental Past and is performed by the lead, Leslie Chung. With A Better Tomorrow, Wu sought to break from the, quote, clownish kung fu films that were being churned out at the time by Shaw Studios and create stories that were realistic and mired in the seedy world of the triads, Hong Kong's notorious organized crime gangs. Wu's film was partially inspired by the 1967 Lung Kong Kong film, which has the same Chinese name but a different English name. It's called Story of a Discharged Prisoner. The film was also partially inspired by The Brothers, a 1979 Hong Kong crime film, plot elements of which were reimagined for A Better Tomorrow. The Brothers had a similar plot about two brothers on opposing sides of the law, the elder brother a mobster and the younger brother a cop. In turn, The Brothers was a remake of D-War from 1975, a hit Indian crime drama. The scene in which Mark Lee tells the story of being forced to drink urine is apparently based on a real incident involving Chow Young-Fat and director Ringo Lam, according to uh, the DVD commentary, and the scene was recreated in Wu's Bullet in the Head. After the film, teenage boys in Hong Kong wore long dusters in emulation of Chow's character, even though the climate was subtropical. In fact, in colloquial uh, Cantonese, trench coats are called Mark Gore Lao, literally meaning Brother Mark's Coat. The Wu-Tang Clan has a song named after the film on their 1997 album, Wu-Tang Forever, and their 20th anniversary album also shares the name A Better Tomorrow. 
In September 2010, prolific Korean filmmaker Song Hae Sung released Invincible, not to be confused with the Mark Wahlberg football movie, which was an unofficial Korean language remake of John Woo's A Better Tomorrow. It opened to positive reception at the Korean box office. John Woo and Terrence Chang also served as executive producers uh, in a joint production between South Korea, Japan, and China. I couldn't find any uh, contemporary reviews of it because I do not speak Chinese. But... Uh, in 2002, the AV Club said, As much an examination of the principles of friendship and family as an action film, tomorrow dust off an age-old melodrama plot, the relationship between two brothers, one a gangster, the other a cop. As good as tomorrow is, Chow and Wu would go on to make even better films together. Uh, on that note, let's talk a little bit about A Better Tomorrow. Um, Nathan, I'm going to kick off with you to chat a little bit about John Wu as a director and, and what about him kind of epitomized uh, Hong Kong filmmaking so much that it, I guess, you know, he came over to America and made Face Off and Mission Impossible 2 and other films. So, um, yeah, John Woo is one of my favorite filmmakers, and he was really the first filmmaker who introduced me to the wonderful, uh, numerous pleasures of Hong Kong cinema. Um, I first saw his movie, The Killer, from 1989 a few years ago um, I think like 2015 and it really blew my mind you know because it's this very like sentimental sincere schmaltzy um, kind of melodramatic filmmaking but it's also you know just like action packed on another level so you have very intense emotions kind of intense an intense visual style and intense violence and, and gunfire all sort of paralleling each other and mirroring each other. Um, so, you know, John Woo is mostly identified with this sort of subgenre of, of films, the heroic bloodshed films, uh, which, which kind of begins with the better tomorrow, you know, and, and uh, of the Hong Kong films that he made, the um, hard boiled and the killer are probably, you know, the most well known in the United States. But what the really interesting thing about those movies um, which have, you know, these massive cult followings uh, in the West, they were actually not that successful in Hong Kong itself. Um, by that time, you know, John Woo was making uh, movies that were very influenced by American filmmakers like Sam Peckinpah and Scorsese and um, European filmmakers like Sergio Leone, you know, so he was taking all these influences from the West and kind of remixing them. But he was making movies unlike anybody else in America, I think, at that time. But he was sort of with the killer and hard-boiled starting to kind of court um, Hollywood. And, you know, he was start of, starting to make movies that were kind of proving his, his skill set in a way that Hollywood could understand a little bit more. Um, and so a lot of people think that his career kind of started with A Better Tomorrow. But he was actually making movies for decades before that, you know, making martial arts movies, making these comedies. And he was actually, you know... Even though he was working constantly, he was pretty unsuccessful for a while. And um, he was basically like banished by the Cinema City studio to make movies in Taiwan. He was kind of exiled for a time. So he and um, legendary Hong Kong filmmaker and producer Choi Hark, um, who's sort of the like kind of Steven Spielberg of Hong Kong, um, 
you know, John Woo really wanted to get back on his feet. He really needed a big hit. So they sort of hatched up the plot for this movie, um, which was a massive success. And like, you know, you pointed out in your intro, Zach, it became this huge kind of iconic pop culture movie, you know, on the level of, of Scarface and The Godfather and Goodfellas in the United States, you know, A Better Tomorrow is for for Hong Kong and for Chinese cinema. Um, there's a great scene in the Xia Zhengke movie, Still Life, from 2006, where a character is watching A Better Tomorrow on a, you know, a VHS tape of, of, of A Better Tomorrow on a small TV screen. And it's this, you know, that iconic image of Mark at the beginning lighting a counterfeit American bill on fire and then using it to light his cigarette. And while that scene is carrying out, the, the character is watching it and then sort of imitates it um, and does the same thing. Um, so, you know, it's this just like Mark, particularly Chow Yun-Fat in this movie, just became, you know, iconic and created this whole new style of movie, this whole new fashion style. Um, I don't like it quite as much as The Killer. Uh, I think for me, that's that and Bullet in the Head are my two favorite of John Woo's Hong Kong movies. Um, you know, they have like this kind of melodrama with a little more oomph and they're a little more... Like, there's a lot of just, like, plot in this movie um, and a lot of characters and a lot of relationships, and it becomes a little unwieldy for me. Um, but I do think it is a, a really, you know, interesting movie just because of this massive cultural impact that it had. And for opening up this kind of new whole wave of movies in Hong Kong, which are some of the movies that are most associated with Hong Kong cinema as a whole. You know, when we think of in America, when you ask people, you know, about Chinese cinema broadly, you know, People think about martial arts movies and a lot of times people think about, you know, John Woo movies and these, you know, the heroic bloodshed bullet ballet and really intense ultra violent action movies. Um, so that's just a little, you know, background, some some context. And yeah. Yeah, I would agree with you uh, in terms of uh, a better tomorrow. Like I, I enjoyed the movie. uh enough but like the like the just abundance of relationships the the plot kind of uh seems to kind of muddle around until for the first 30 or so minutes because at least for me i was trying to like connect who's with who uh what what faction is this like a good is this bad like what's it, it took me a while to kind of uh figure out where everything was kind of settled in place so i'd be curious to like watch it again um but yeah there's so there's there's just way too many moving parts. I think just at the beginning that it kind of disorients you a little bit. Um, and so, you know, I'm I, like, I mean, it's, it's probably unfair, but like I was thinking about this compared to, you know, some of the Jackie Chan movies that we watched earlier this year. And those ones kind of just set you up with such a basic, like this is this, this is that it's so baseline that they're pretty easy to follow. Even if you don't necessarily know what's going on. And this one was just a little bit more complex. There was a lot more things going on. And um, like I said, maybe, maybe I'll get more out of it in a second viewing, but it was just kind of disorienting the first time. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I think that, the killer and hard boiled and bullet in the head. Um, and also his American movies are very visually maximalist, but there's a real kind of greater narrative and emotional economy where you sort of understand these relationships in an almost like silent cinema way, you know, just through glances and gestures, you know, a couple of characters, you figure out where everybody stands and how they feel about each other. And you also, you know, have this kind of recurring theme in his work, like, like somebody like Michael Mann, um, you know, exploring this like male 
duality, um, these sort of doubles, like, you know, the border between cop and criminal. Um, so that's, you know, something that John Woo works through a lot too. Um, but in this movie, there are just so many main characters and all of them have this sort of doubling that it just becomes really complicated. Like, you know, Sung T. Lung's character, you know, he's the mastermind, the man on top, you know, then he becomes a humble cabbie who's sort of forced back in to the game. So he's playing, you know, these two kinds of characters. Similarly, Chow Yun-Fat also, you know, really glamorous on top, in charge. And then, you know, he's wounded, crippled, and forced to, you know, work the lowest jobs in the organization. Leslie Chung, Kit, he, you know, is just this, like, happy-go-lucky, naive kid. Tragedy strikes. He becomes a hardened police officer. Shing, um, you know, the younger sort of guy, uh, the sidekick to, to Sung and Mark. He is sort of, you know, nervous, timid, kind of, you know, a green in the organization. And then he becomes, you know, the top dog. So everybody has this sort of reversal. And he does sort of ask a lot of his actors, you know. I, um, it's, it is it is like, you know, it requires a really sort of tremendous physical and emotional performance, I think, on, on the part of all of those main male characters to kind of do this doubling and essentially all of them kind of play two characters but it just is like there's so many of them you know you have four kind of main guys and they're all doubled in some way uh and it's just like a little hard to to follow um fully i think um and it also like you know it's interesting because you start to see the style of the later john woo hong kong movies getting made here but it feels a little, a little drier compared to the killer and hard boiled, and it almost feels a little bit more like you know Miami Vice or like some kind of television cop procedural. Um, sometimes the way the music is used too almost feels like you know transition, you know wipe to you know cut to scene in a very kind of TV way tra- of transitioning between locations. Um, Andrew, I'm curious to see uh, to see what you kind of made of the film because, uh, yeah, you said you weren't as as, as big of a, of a fan of some of uh, John Woo's other films that you'd seen. Yeah, I'll, I'll give a a glimpse of like my journey with John Woo because it's it's been kind of up and down. But just general um, thoughts on this movie is that I I want to echo what you guys have said about the complications of the plot. I also had a hard time following it. And Nathan, it, it's clarifying to me to hear you talk about the the like the intentional character work here uh, and all the doubling and that being a source of confusion because I think while I was watching it I was having a hard time figuring out why I was confused. Like I I should be able to follow a movie about like cops and criminals, right? This is not like really complex, you know, postmodernist shit here, but I'm I'm struggling to, you know, put the character constellation together and and follow all the stuff that's happening, but that makes sense that um, there are all these like parallel characters and parallel plot lines that can are easy to get confused. Um this was a movie that I nominated uh, when we were, you know, when we put our ballot out there to, to see what people wanted us to do for this series. Um, and I wanted to do it because I have had a desire to, you know, 
understand John Woo movies and like foster an appreciation for John Woo movies. Um, I first saw The Killer, you know, maybe four years ago um, when Nathan showed it at UT Cinema Club way back and he was really high on it and I was looking forward to it and I just... I struggled. I had a hard time keeping up with that one too, but I also, I think that my reaction was uh, very shallow, very dumb. I was in my phase of action movies are bad, you know, movies shouldn't have explosions and a lot of gunfire in them. This is just like, you know, dumb, dumb violence stuff that I am not interested in. And in the interim, between seeing that movie and now, I've, I've kind of realized that uh, that was a shallow take and also um, heard a lot of discourse about, about John Woo and uh, in, become interested in filmmakers who were inspired by John Woo, like Zsa Zhang Ke, uh, you mentioned, references John Woo in, in many movies, including, like you said, Still Life, but also A Touch of Sin is kind of a John Woo riff. And uh, his most recent movie, Ashes Purest White, has some music from a John Woo movie in it as well and, and, and has some... Uh, Hong Kong action elements in it too so and, and I've also heard people talk about these movies as melodramas they're they're movies about um, men being very like emotionally vulnerable with one another and you know talking about it in the same way people talk about point break as movies that are action movies but they're really romances uh, you know they're kind of homoerotic in a way and so like theoretically in the abstract like all this sounds really interesting to me and I want to I want to go back and and understand John Wu and for him to become one of my favorite filmmakers too and maybe just a better tomorrow was a bad pick to to go back to I chose it because of that iconic image of him burning the uh, the dollar the hundred dollar bill uh, that I had seen from still life recently I think when I when I picked it um, but yeah I I just had a hard time with it I was I was bored and I was frustrated and I while I was watching it, I couldn't quite tell why, why I was bored and frustrated. And I think part of it, in addition to just the fact that the plot is maybe a little intentionally confusing because of all the doubling, um, is also you know, the way that Jackie Chan has been influential in American movies and the way that John Woo has been influential in American movies are very different um, in that John Woo's style of bullet ballet and like maximalist explosion heavy action scenes have kind of become the norm uh, to the point where I've learned to tune them out or I've conditioned myself to tune them out. And so I think going back to the source can be frustrating when you've seen this done so poorly um, for so long that you know, it's like it's like people going and, and watching, you know, for example, like there's the TV tropes page Seinfeld is unfunny, which is basically making the argument that like you might not appreciate something, but it was innovative for its time. And I can I can imagine how John Woo's movies were extremely innovative for the time, but they're they've been so innovative and so influential that it feels a little blasé to me now and I recognize that that's a stupid viewpoint and that you know I hate hearing that from people 
who watch any other old movie and say, yeah, well, I've seen this done better before, um, especially when they're talking about like canon movies that I love. Um, so I don't, I feel bad expressing this lukewarm, you know, disappointment with this film, but that's where I'm at. And I, I wish I liked it more, but I don't. So I'll say, um, you know, I think that a, a parallel for me with particularly John Woo, but a lot of this sort of wave of 80s Hong Kong action that was very informed by American and European cinema. Um, I feel like there was something similar that happened with that wave of filmmakers to what happened with the French New Wave, you know, where... As we have talked about on our Patreon bonus episode about Peter Wallen's The Outshore Theory, you know, all these French filmmakers were able to see all these American crime and noir and B pictures and war movies and proto kind of action movies almost. They absorbed all those influences, deconstructed them, remixed them. And then those movies got back to America and all of these young American filmmakers and film students saw those movies and were like, whoa, like, you know, we're going to now be influenced by these European filmmakers who are influenced by American filmmakers. And so you have these sort of multiple degrees of, of influence um, in this sort of coming full circle almost. And I think the same thing kind of happens with, you know, John Woo, where he takes Scorsese and Peckinpah and Sam Fuller and Sergio Leone, does his spin on them. And then you have both... John Woo and, and Choi Hark and Ringo Lam and a lot of those Hong Kong filmmakers coming to literally coming to Hollywood in the 90s and 2000s. And then also tons of filmmakers from Tarantino to Robert Rodriguez to Michael Bay, you know, to Michael Mann, uh, kind of ripping them off unconsciously or consciously um, in some way. And so that for me is like what I think is. Uh, I, I do have a sort of like I, I really like John Woo, but I am a little more with you, Andrew, honestly, on on A Better Tomorrow particularly because I feel like the really interesting thing about it is not necessarily the whole movie itself. It's just sort of like charting this relationship. And I think that like a lot of the, the those early French New Wave movies, you know, a lot of those haven't aged entirely greatly, you know, either. Like I love Godard, but Breathless I don't think is like, you know – a masterpiece necessarily. Uh, you know, I, and I, so I think it's just like, you know, it's sometimes the most influential, sometimes movies are, get the most dated. Uh, and I think it's sort of a case with that. And I, I feel like the same thing is kind of true with Italian neorealism, right? Like, Oh, movies about normal people doing ordinary things. That's incredibly normal in the world that I live in, but I can see how it was revolutionary when it happened. Well, I guess, how do you, um, then how do you, like, engage with those movies? Because, I mean, I, I've had the same, uh, re like, relationship with these kind of movies that are not just canonical in the kind of academic circles, but also have, like, a cultural impact, um like on pop culture um i think i'm trying to th like uh oh shoot we, I, like i think we kind of had this discussion uh, or maybe we didn't but i think a movie that we kind of like didn't react well to but had like a very big pop culture uh impact was something like risky business 
um, which is something that people like really enjoy is like this kind of pop culture uh, moment. But as a movie, we were kind of like, I don't really get it. Um, so I guess how do you, how do you engage with those movies? Both movies with uh, both movies with iconic pairs of uh, sunglasses. Very true. <laughs> and iconic electronic synthesizer heavy soundtracks. Yes. Good parallel. I did like the synthesizer soundtrack in Better Tomorrow. Yeah, I there say. were some yeah. moments where I was like, somebody needs to be sampling this. Um, yeah, it's it's a good soundtrack. But I guess, like, how do you... Um, I don't know. How do, how do you... Uh, are you able to kind of appreciate them on that level and then move on? Or do you feel like you should be getting more out of the movie because it's so... I mean, I feel like most of the time... When I go back and watch canonical movies, um, old movies in general, um, they tend to be not what I expect, and there tends to be some like idiosyncratic qualities about it that make the era come alive for me in a way that it wouldn't otherwise, or like I wouldn't be able to imagine otherwise. Like I love watching. Hollywood comedies from like the 30s and the 40s, you know, and these are I could see people going back and looking at them and and just saying like, you know, these are are kind of stodgy. They're 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 not like laugh out loud, funny, you know, comedy has evolved since then or whatever. But um, I don't know. I, I rarely I honestly rarely have that sensation of going back and watching a canonical movie from the past and thinking I've seen this before. Um, cause there's usually something that like my assumptions are not always correct about what it's going to be. Um, I don't know. Nathan, what about you? Um, I think that, gosh, I just I had know. a point that I really liked and then it sort of left my brain a little bit. Um, but, uh, to, to keep the conversation going, you know, I think that it's just one of those things where, like, it's kind of like the case of uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari a little bit. Um, I don't know if we talked about this on our Patreon episode about Peter Wallen, but Peter Wallen has a a study, the scholar, film theorist Peter Wallen, has a study of uh, sort of the, the changes over the decades in the sight and sound list and and one of the things that he noticed is how cabinet of Dr. Caligari when the poll first started was very high and it's just like completely dropped out over the years. And, you know, that's one of those movies that is the movie that people talk about really with German expressionism. So it has this tremendous influence, but there are other movies that were, you know, inspired by it that took from it that for whatever reason to more contemporary audiences, you know, have some greater emotional resonance and I think that um, that's just sometimes what happens where, you know, the like influence in a moment, you know, when a movie comes out is very different from what that movie becomes over time. And I think in the case of something like A Better Tomorrow, I think what attracts a lot of people outside of Hong Kong to Hong Kong cinema, for better and worse, it can lead to a sort of kind of like exotic you know, exoticizing, orientalizing a little bit. But because it was the sort of furious, you know, unregulated capitalist, hyper-capitalist industry producing things at a massive rate, you have a lot of 
like unsupervision. You know, you have a lot of just like weird shit kind of spilling through the cracks because there's so much being made and it can't all be like rigorously supervised. So you have a lot of movies that are just in some way are just like, you know, on a completely different kind of like unhinged wavelength of just like maximum intensity, maximum violence, maximum comedy, maximum sexuality, whatever. It's just all kind of a lot of, a lot of it, not all of it, but a number of it. And sometimes what's most popular in the West is the most extreme and A Better Tomorrow was, like, really designed to be a hit. You know, John Woo wanted to hit. Choi Hark was, at that time, becoming really successful. Um, he just made the big special effects uh, spectacle, Zoo, Warriors of the Magic Mountain, which he made with some of the special effects guys on movies like Star Wars. Um, and so he was, you know, becoming really successful, Choi Hark was, and John Woo wanted some of that. And they designed this movie that was designed to be a hit, and it became a hit. And so I think that's one of those things, too, where sometimes what responds to people more over time or more to people outside of a specific national cinema is the kind of the accidental, the mistake, you know, the stuff that leaks through and not what's, like, calculated and designed to be a hit. Um, so I think that's part of it, too, is just, like, history and people's emotions diverge and what's designed to be a hit in the moment doesn't always translate to to time Um, so is this the the action genre equivalent of white elephant art you know a movie that's trying to be as big and flashy as it possibly can and uh is kind of lesser for that um yeah i guess i i mean i think so because i think that um yeah, it's it seems to be going for something like much broader, uh, and it's not just like I mean it is. It, I do feel like a better tomorrow was kind of I don't know, almost like a prestige picture in in Hong Kong a little bit, like because it is a little more like kind of uh, you know, it's not like really gross. It doesn't have a lot of physical comedy it's not really horny or you know like sexual in some way um it is a kind of more like you know it's like it's like the the gangsters in it you know who are slick back their hair and wear these you know trench coats it's like kind of dressed up um and so i do feel like maybe you know of of the the kind of hong kong action cinema it's a little more of the the white elephant and uh not so much the sort of like, you know, the guy just like making whatever, you know, John Woo wanted to make a big movie and he did. And then he started making movies that Americans liked and he came over here and did that for a little bit. And, uh, and John Woo also, as we should point out, has an extensive kind of, not actually even really a cameo, like a, he acts in this movie. Um, he's the police chief who wears glasses um, I feel like there are a lot of those. <laughs> but he's like the shorter guy. He wears really big glasses. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of um, him now, and I, I remember him in the movie for sure. Yeah, there's this great picture I have saved on my computer from an interview with John Woo, where it's like a picture of him, and then there's subtitles that say, any homoerotic feelings in this movie are purely uh, accidental. <laughs> That's incredible. Well, I mean, any last thoughts from you guys about this movie? I feel like I don't have a whole lot else to say about it. No, I think 
I, I, I'll, it's not going to be, be like one of those, I'm not watching anymore, John Woo. I'd like to explore more of his Hong Kong, uh, you know, catalog outside of just this one. Cause like I said, I didn't, I didn't completely dislike it. Honestly, I felt like it started to coalesce a lot more in like it's final 30 minutes when it's like the, the gangster brother having to fight off all of the people coming after him. And then you have the relationship between him and his brother. If, if his brother's going to like help him or turn him in. Like, I felt like that's where it started to come together as like, Oh, this is like, I, I, I understand. I've, you know, I, I get what this movie's trying to do. And so that's why I say another viewing might open it up a little bit more for me. But um, yeah, I mean, there, there was, I don't know. I guess I, it was, I was too, uh, I was too lost and kind of, uh swimming around too much in the in the beginning to really like love this um i will say just a brief word on the sequels to this movie if you do like a better tomorrow and you're interested in watching a little bit more so there's a better tomorrow 2 um which is from 1987 it's directed by john woo but he and Troy Hark were really fighting at that time and they both kind of like recut the movie and were taking it away from each other and fighting over it. Um, so it's just like a really messy movie. And of course, you know, like Chow Yun-Fat um, dies in this movie, but he was like the most popular character from it. So they had to find a way to bring him back. So in A Better Tomorrow 2, they're like, surprise, he's got this twin brother you didn't know about who's in America work, working as a chef. So they like go to America to find him and there's some really bad English dubbing. Um, there's like a crazy shootout sequence at the end. It's a really like even more confusing movie, but in a kind of just like bonkers fun way, you know, it is uh, much more traumatic ter- than uh, <laughs> A Better Tomorrow, I think. And then the third one, um, which was like, you know, Choi Hark was like, he and John Woo kind of split up for a minute. Troy Hart decided to make a prequel to A Better Tomorrow, which is about Mark's years in Vietnam prior to the first movie. Um, and that was sort of like Troy Hart's way of getting back at John Woo, who at that time was also making a Vietnam movie, Bullet in the Head, which I think is maybe his best Hong Kong movie, honestly, maybe even better than The Killer. Um, but if you like this one and you haven't seen The Killer, Hard Boiled, Bullet in the Head, definitely go see those movies. They're really amazing, all of them. Um, if you want to see Before A Better Tomorrow, I think that... Um, the movie Last Hurrah for Chivalry from 1978, which is sort of you know straight-up Wuxia historical martial arts movie, is on um, the Criterion channel. A lot of his other stuff isn't that available, though, from Before Better Tomorrow. Um, but, yeah, the, there's a lot that you can kind of go out from, from here um, with this movie. A lot of doors that it opens up for you, so... Cool stuff. Um, well, I guess that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter at handle at cinematary, on Letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary, where we post all of the movies that we talked about in this episode. And for those who would like to hear uh, a longer discussion about the auteur theory and white elephant heart and, and such that we mentioned in this episode, we have uh, two film theory and chill episodes <laughs> on that. We're going to be talking about masculinity and action movies this month, so I, it's a good time to jump on our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash cinematary. Uh, so let's thank our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsom, Christopher Metcalf, Eric Dukowski, Graham Jones, Harry Eskin, uh, Maggie, Marie Barty, Matthew Lingo, Miranda Barnwall, Ron Hayes, Tyler Chandler, and Whitney Rio Ross. We thank you so much for supporting the website and supporting our wonderful writers. Uh, next week, we're going to be kicking... 
One of which, uh, one of which is Miranda, who uh, she needs to stop being a patron because she's going to be writing for us and getting paid from patrons. But I should mention that she has a review of Hustlers going out next Monday, which will probably be much more eloquent and thorough than my review in part one. So please go read that. Uh, but I'm really excited about this next series that we're doing. Um, Zach, you want to give a rundown yeah. of that? Well, uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce it? Oh, okay, yeah, so every October, we like to do our October horror series. First couple of years, it was pretty scattershot, just you know, various horror movies we all either liked a lot or, or wanted to get around to watching. Um, last year, we did a theme. We did horror movies directed by women, and that was a big success. We're doing another theme again this year. Um, maybe a little weirder, uh, and that is we're doing a series on found footage horror, the oft-derided subgenre that was ubiquitous a couple of years ago, but now very quiet outside of uh, the the stray desktop thriller here and there. Um, So our first film is going to be a movie called uh, Ghost Hunters. Is that what it's called? No, it's called uh, Ghost Watch. Ghost Watch, Ghost British Watch. TV film, which I think is maybe the the first actual found footage film. Um, then we'll follow that up with the Japanese found footage film Neroy. Uh, we'll look at the Spanish language film Wreck, uh, which of course got a popular English language remake. Um, and then we'll end with two big American found footage movies, the biggest ones, I would say, aside from Blair Witch Project, which we already did several years back, and those are Paranormal Activity and Unfriended, two movies I like a lot. <laughs> I'm excited to talk to you guys about those and and just talk about this very strange format uh, that there's no real analog for in any other genres. It's, it's just bizarre. Yeah, it should be... Uh... I'm I, I I'm excited to dig into Unfriended as we sit on a computer and talk. Yeah, man, watch it on your laptop. All right. Uh, well, yeah, check that out. We'll have the whole list on the website on Friday. Uh, but yeah, until then, thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.